0: Good morning, gang. Happy Friday, May 3rd, 2019. Happy weekend, those of you already heading into the weekend. We've got a really great show today with sort of an international flair. So let me tell you who's coming up today on Sidebar with John Duran. We're going to open the show with my good old pal, the walking Wikipedia of LGBT community, Karen Oakham, a longtime journalist, longtime friend of mine who kind of knows everything about everything. So I always love having her on, and we're gonna talk a bit about what's going on in Venezuela. And of course, the impact it's having on those LGBT refugees who are trying to get out of Venezuela, trying to get out of the Central American era and the Trump policies and what's happening. But but with Karen and I, we can talk about anything. You'll see. You'll see. We've just been friends a long time. We talk about anything and everything. And then after Karen, my second guest is Pezman Khan, a young gay man in his 20s who was raised in Iran and served in the military. And uh, well, let's just say being gay in Iran and in the military, not a great combination for anybody, um, <laughs> anybody at any time. And so he'll be talking about his experiences in Iran. And uh, then to wind up the show. My third and final guest, David Ayon. Uh, David is a professor. He is an author. He has written extensively about the empowerment of the Latino community throughout the southwestern United States. Uh, he happened, He lives in the Bay Area, um, but he happened to be in Los Angeles last night. I went to hear him lecture at the Iranian Jewish Temple and had talked to him a few weeks earlier because I heard he was coming to Los Angeles. And I said, David, would you stay one more night and uh, do my radio? show the next morning, and he said, I'd love to, John. So David is an ally of the LGBT community. He and I actually toured Israel together about four years ago, Um, but he knows all about the history of the Latino community and how they came to power in uh, the Southwest and specifically in the state of California, because when you think about it, 50 years ago, uh, there were no, it's going to be hard to believe this, no Latinos uh, in the state legislature. The first Latino to finally get on the Los Angeles City Council uh, was Mr. Edward Royball in the 1950s. Uh, and what's ironic, of course, is that this entire area, Los Angeles, at one time was Mexico. And so to not have any uh, Latinos in government in positions of power and then from until the 1950s to where we are today, where we have three constitutional officers who are Latino in the state of California, the attorney general, Javier Becerra, the secretary of state, Alex Padilla, and openly gay uh, Latino, Ricardo Lada, the uh, state of California insurance commissioner. That community has come a long way in a very short period of time, and you know what? Our histories overlap, because while the Latino community was coming into power, so was the LGBT community, and uh, at least here in Southern California, there was a very strange axis that had to exist between the power structure on the west side, represented by the Berman Waxman machine, the uh, prominent uh, Jewish community leadership, and the power structure that was developing on the east side of Los Angeles, uh, with the Royballs and the Polanco's and the Torreses, and and uh, and how, in the midst of all that, LGBT people had no representatives in Sacramento, in Congress, uh, nothing other than on the local level in the city of West Hollywood. Uh, San Francisco and Laguna Beach and how we managed to you know develop and flourish at the same time under the same conditions and circumstances. So uh, I think David's going to be a fascinating person to, to listen to. We're going to have a really you know a host of really smart people today and I, I guess in celebration of Cinco de Mayo which is this weekend. By the way, don't drink and drive or you'll be one of my clients if you're in Southern California. Don't drink and drive. Ha- have a good time but uh, we're going to have an international flair this month. And throughout the month of May, I've got a lot of really good pals coming on. Uh, Lori McBride, uh, who you know was the lesbian leading the life lobby in the early 90s when we were struggling for equality, uh, long before we ever got to gays in the military or marriage equality. She was at the forefront of the struggle. She'll be coming on the show. And uh, the legendary Cleve Jones, my old pal, who was the assistant to Harvey Malkin. Uh, created the AIDS quilt and an author and just an absolute wonder and joy. And uh, he'll be another one of my guests this month. And uh, coming up in May, Rand Martin, who was the very first lobbyist on HIV and AIDS in the mid 80s um, when we were all getting this all started. So it's going to be a great day today. It's going to be a great month through the month of May. And of course, we will Uh, end this month uh, celebrating Harvey Milk's birthday. And then come June, I'm already starting to line up guests for Pride Month that should make a very wonderful month of June. So I want to thank you all for tuning in to Sidebar with John Durant. We got people listening now. We've added so many cities uh, out there in Boston, in Philadelphia, in Miami, in Atlanta, in New Orleans. Welcome, New Orleans, Uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, Denver, Uh, Dallas, Houston, Palm Springs, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Denver, uh, all across this great nation, people tuning in to Channel Q, and we are continuing to flourish and grow, and I'm so glad that you decided to uh, listen through J.M. Michaela this morning, and now you're going on with Sidebar with John Duran. When we come back, we'll be first up, my walking Wikipedia, power lesbian Karen Oakham. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. You're listening to Sidebar with John Duran, and my first guest this morning, the incredible Karen Ocum, LGBT journalist walking Wikipedia of LGBT history.
2: (laughs) You do realize that, thank you, John, you do realize that Wikipedia can be changed by anybody who...
0: (laughs) Good point. Maybe I should call you a thesaurus or a dictionary instead.
2: (laughs) They can still be changed, as can I, but...
0: (laughs) I love that. You have done so much work in journalism over the years. I mean, you started with... Uh, NBC, I think, isn't that originally? CBS News. CBS News is yeah. where you started and then you, I know you've worked for Frontiers, you've worked mm-hmm. for The Blade, I think you've written for The Advocate, you wrote for Lesbian News when Jinx Spears uh, had that. No, it was no. Uh,
2: after Jinx,
0: yeah. After Jinx, okay, yeah. yeah. Berman. <clears throat> And now you've been uh, very active with the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists Association, right?
2: Well, I have been in and out of that organization when uh, Leroy Ahrens first um, founded it many years ago. um, There were a number of L.A. Times journalists who I knew uh, who suggested that I join. And I said, well, wait a second, I'm a poor, you know, LGBT print person, you know, I don't have fees and I can't go here. So, you know, they thought that it was uh, Jane Engel in particular thought that uh, it was important to have the LGBT press it was then called the gay press uh, involved in the organization because it it wasn't just about getting domestic partnership um, benefits for mainstream journalists it was about seriously taking on non-discrimination uh, trying to correct the record within a news organization before it became public you mm-hmm. know challenging attitudes and and beliefs. So they, uh, they waived the fee for me and they brought me on board and that led to other people coming on board. Um, I had a, a major issue with NLGGA during um, Prop 8 because the uh, chair of the board at that time uh, worked at the San Francisco Chronicle at the time when the um, Prop 8 was You know, I mean, it was very close to to the election. And uh, the parents of children whose lesbian, beloved lesbian teacher was about to get married at City Hall, called the social desk at the San Francisco Chronicle and said, we love her. Can you cover this in the social back pages? Right. Well, that was taken over by the political desk, which then called the Yes on Prop 8 campaign and said, did you know that this is going on? These parents and their kids are going to show up at City Hall to congratulate the uh, their teacher who is being married at City Hall. This is within that brief window after the uh, California State Supreme Court ruled that we had the constitutional right to marry. Um, and then... Um, You know, they essentially created the cover story by calling, by taking it over from the social pages, not telling the parents. So the yes on, um, this is uh, Frank Schubert and all those anti-gay folks, showed up, took pictures, wound up publicizing it. The parents were aghast because they were against Prop 8, Prop Eight, which would have, which did, uh, take away the right to uh, you know, for marriage equality, and uh, you know the whole point of NLGJA was to talk within the news organization to say, wait a second, you cannot create news like this, uh, which is what they were doing. So I became very upset about that. That front page image of children uh, waiting for their beloved teacher who had just been married, that was publicized and used by the Yes on Prop 8 folks as a campaign thing, using the kids' images without the parents' permission. The parents had a news conference, nobody covered it. Uh, on and on and on. So I just flipped out because here's a, a NLGJA person in the middle of all of this who could have stopped that. Right and at least <clears throat> alerted the the no one Prop 8 people.
0: So here, I think here's the question you're getting to. Do we need an LGBT press? I mean, we've got Rachel Maddow and Ari Melber on MSNBC uh, and, of course, uh, the darling uh, uh, I'm blanking on his name, Anderson on CNN. Anderson Cooper. Yeah, Anderson Donald Cooper and on CNN. And,
2: but, I mean, but who they, else told the story I just
0: told? Well, right. They never bring their LGBT identities into any of their reporting. Rarely unless it's
2: pertinent uh you know both in terms of like commentary and and full disclosure i mean don lemming came out and he talked about being abused for instance rachel talks about uh when she was a member of act up in san francisco for a bit Mm -hmm. uh she was studying public health at the time um i don't know anderson took a long time to come out but In answer to your question, yes, of course. I mean, the story I just told is sort of a a very major behind-the-scenes story of of how and why Prop 8 passed in California by, you know, by the voters uh, overturning a constitutional right. So who else is paying attention to things like this? I mean, as you well know, the next morning after Prop 8 passed, all these kids went what? I didn't know my rights were going to be taken away. Right. You know, Laurie McBride, you were talking about Laurie McBride. She tried so hard, as did you, uh, to get uh, folks to pay attention to our, AB 101. A, right. our civil rights bill, AB 101, which, by the way, <coughs> was first introduced by Art Agnos, a Latino in the early 1970s and finally it came to the fore and was going to be signed. Pete Wilson promised Governor Pete Wilson, if he was elected he'd sign that bill, he vetoed it. Major explosions uh, happened around that, but you and Laurie McBride tried very hard working with Frontiers and other publications to draw attention to it. It wasn't until it was vetoed, just as Prop 8 was uh, was passed, the people started paying attention. Yeah. Now things are so crazy, especially around the AIDS crisis. The AIDS crisis brought a lot of attention to you know why there is a need for the LGBT press. But right now we're going we're in a constitutional crisis. You know, LGBT rights, transgender rights in particular, are being rolled back, rolled back, rolled back, stopped. I mean, this new uh, HHS. Uh, law this guideline is you know allows for the conscience, a religious conscience clause. So, if a doctor decides that uh, he or she does not want to give a lesbian, you know, fertility treatments or a transgender person any treatment and help in transitioning whatsoever, or perhaps even you know, dispensing AIDS treatments, they can say hey it violates my religious conscience my religious beliefs so i'm not going to do it that's happening
0: well and it's probably going to happen with the u.s supreme court i mean the three cases that the u.s supreme court has decided to hear the focus is going to be on the religious exemption and there's a very strong possibility that it may pass and eviscerate a lot of lgbt protection laws unless chief justice Roberts
2: isn't he? Decide, out to be the surprise decides to be
0: the new Kennedy <laughs> yeah. and hold the center of the court and yeah, we'll, see. we'll all see come October yeah,
2: yeah. that's that's his legacy uh, you know the the court uh But, I mean, we are under attack once again, and it's really because there's so much going on. Yeah. Really serious stuff going on. The
0: good news about being under attack, it is the human condition that when one is under attack— one gets activated, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't in AB 101 in 1991. Nobody would lobby for it because they were all busy doing HIV and AIDS works. And then when Pete Wilson vetoed it, a whole generation of activists were born. Prop 8, we couldn't get people to help, you know, raise money for it, do anything to defeat Prop 8 until it passed. And then another whole generation of activists were born. Now in Trump world, we're seeing new activists born in response to Donald Trump. Yes, but... But
2: more on the state and local level. I mean, because nobody's getting traction in D.C. whatsoever. I mean, you know... Uh, the House is on its way to passing the Equality Act and, you know, the whole intention of that is not only to provide federal protections but to raise awareness. The problem is it's, it can't break through in terms of explaining what the Equality Act is right. because there's so much, I mean, we well, can,
0: And Mitch McConnell's never going to allow it to see the light of day in the right. Senate. That's, so, that's why elections matter, 2020 matters, not only getting rid of Donald Trump, but turning over uh, the majority in the Senate would be really critical.
2: And yeah. electing a new president.
0: That too. <laughs> We're going to talk about Venezuela when we come back. You're listening to Side by with John Doreen. We're talking to Karen Ocum here on Channel Q.
3: How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage.
0: We're talking to Karen Oakham, a noted LGBT journalist forever, 30, 30 years plus, yeah?
2: Well, I've been a journalist since 1973, but... Yeah. Uh,
0: Nobody in LGBT the studio 15%. other than you and me were alive in 1973. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you right now, neither Jason or, yeah, yeah, or Mr. Maganya over there, neither were alive in 1973. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm kidding. Uh let's talk about Venezuela for a second so I think whenever uh, the issue of immigration comes up Mm -hmm. you know LGBT people are like is that an LGBT issue you're darn right it is (laughs) darn right because there are people being persecuted all over the world in fact we're going to my next guest is uh, came here from Iran a place where homosexuals are treated by stoning them to death as one of the options for homosexuality put to death because of their sexual orientation and that's certainly true in parts of Central America so a lot of the refugees coming out of El Salvador and Guatemala and uh, in uh, Venezuela are escaping persecution and oppression. But sadly... The Trump administration is now holding them all at the Mexican border, not allowing them to seek refugee status, not allowing them to enter without paying a processing fee when they basically don't even have money to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. And so rather than Lady Liberty, Statue of Liberty, standing there with her lifted torch to welcome people who are escaping persecution from all over the world, we see instead a wall not only a physical wall proposed, but a wall being built by the Trump administration. Yeah,
2: he said uh, Trump uh, is trying to, wants to change the asylum laws. Right. I mean, that in and of itself is a violation of international human rights laws. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but but when you step back and look at it, look at how hard it is to get asylum in the first place. Right. Uh, all these papers that people have to fill out... You have to explain in the papers and then before an immigration judge, and by the way, the the backlog is like 800,000 cases, you know, including uh, for immigration, uh, including asylum. But, I mean, imagine you know you're fleeing violence especially in in our cases lgbt cases trans cases in particular you're fleeing lgbt violence you you turn yourself in which is what you have to do in order to say i i am seeking asylum you're mistreated if you have children Those children are taken away. We don't know where or what's happening. They may or may not still now have a database tracking them so parents and children can be reunited. But imagine without a lawyer filling out these complicated forms in which you have to justify and explain why you need asylum. Let's say you're a shy Catholic lesbian who has been repeatedly raped by the police that you went and and first you were raped, then you went to the police to say, I've been raped, help me, help me, then you're raped again. So even your so-called protectors aren't protecting you, they're, they're violating you. And you have to, you know, how as a shy Catholic girl do you even explain that you're a lesbian, let alone that you've been raped? to these uncaring people on a piece of paper, an immigration judge, ICE uh, people, and then you're placed in in a detention center, more of which are becoming for-profit. They're ICE detention centers, but they're for-profit. There's a a trans woman named Alejandra that Bambi Salcido from Transgender Trans Latina Coalition is trying to help. Now, she's the longest-held detainee asylum seeker. She's trans. She's been in this uh, New New Mexico ICE detention center. She uh, had an illness when she first came in. It was easily cured by, uh, you know, an antibiotic shot. She's now seriously ill because she wasn't treated. She has been waiting, 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 and the lawyer with whom uh, Bambi's working, I've interviewed, says that ICE falsified documents, and those falsified documents were part of the proceedings, so she didn't even get a free and clear and, and fair hearing so she's been denied, 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 and held in this uh, detention center. And uh, Bambi started this campaign called Free Alejandra. Now, you were talking about Venezuela. You right. know, there's going to be a mass uh, immigration or migration from Venezuela because it's pure chaos. Well, right? people
0: can't feed themselves. No. Uh, the average salary is $3 a month. That, that's, that's the right. So
2: that on top of a pending civil war right. between the uh, recognized uh, president and the guy who's holding the presidency and won't let go. Maduro. Yep. Yeah, who is not a good man. Um, but Trump and John Bolton. And Mike and-
0: Pompeo. The Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor
2: Are talking about the possibility of military action in Venezuela.
0: To overthrow a socialist government, in essence.
2: But consider people do constantly forget the lessons of Vietnam. That was, well, we're just sending in military advisors. We're just sending in military advisors. JFK, before he was assassinated, was rethinking that whole thing, but Lyndon Johnson was lied to by General Westmoreland and others, and we went whole hog without telling the American people what was going on. Then we instituted the draft, and there was this creeping militarism with no defined goal, no exit strategy. So people like Jim Mattis, who resigned as defense secretary, or Colin Powell, or any of the military top military uh, folks who've been in the in several administrations, would say, "You have to be very careful when you're talking about the possibility of military action in Venezuela. What's your exit strategy? Look at all the surrounding countries that you could wind up, you know, going into as well." Now, some people would suggest the CIA is already been there (laughs) overthrowing governments in the past in the 70s but what is that going to mean we have a volunteer military transgender people are not allowed to serve anymore are we going to bring back the draft by a draft dodger president i mean what the hell but you're talking about people rising up I'm not seeing people rising up. I did with the Women's March. I see maybe Cinco de Mayo will become a little bit more political this time.
0: No, it's about tequila and margaritas. (laughs) I'm sorry to break your heart on that. (laughs) Well,
2: I don't know. There's just so much around immigration and, you know, hating all Mexicans, period, by this president. That's how he announced his run for the presidency. Um, but I'm not sure, it's, it's like people have become numb to the crisis that's going on. I mean, our democracy really seriously is at stake. And, you know, we as LGBT press are finding the little niches where we can talk about that. Uh, Openly gay uh, Representative David Cicilline, for instance, in the House of Representatives is on the Judiciary Committee. That's a gay way to get into looking at what the hell is going on with the Judiciary Committee. but. We're having our rights rolled back and we're not in the streets over that. Yeah. So everybody is kind of like numb and on hold talking about the 2020 elections. What's happening in the meantime?
0: Yeah. No, very good point. I think part of it and part of the issue is the way in which communication occurs now. Mm -hmm. Historically, communication occurred through three major networks who produce the news, hopefully in a neutral fashion. Now with hundreds of media forms and with Internet and with uh, access and information available on your phone at your fingertips 24 hours a day. And
2: irresponsible outlets like Facebook. Yeah who say, oh, First Amendment is the most important thing. They've only gotten around to uh, banning real serious hate groups yeah. uh, and hate speech like Alex Jones.
0: All right. well, this will save for another show, because there's one we could go another 20 minutes. Uh, where When we come back, we'll be talking to Pezman Khan, uh gay Iranian in the military in Iran. And uh, thank you for listening to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Jason, I have no idea who that is. You're going to, like, lecture me. I'm going to get my millennial lecture of the morning. Who is that? Sir, that's Katy Perry. <laughs> oh, of course it's Katy Perry. Of course it's Katy Perry. Uh, you're here on Channel Q, uh, Sidebar with John Duran. We are still here with Karen Oakham, noted LGBT journalist, and we've just been uh, joined by Paisman Yassi. Um, Pes- welcome. You're, Thank you. You're also a millennial, yes?
4: How old are you? Uh, 29. 29. You're yes,
0: a John. babe. I'm not even tell you old Karen and I are. We're somewhere between... <laughs> (laughs) 40 and death. That's that's where we are. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, you know, I've been wanting to have you on for a while because I think what's happening in Iran is just fascinating to me. And I know that you spent many years in Iran. You were born in the U.S., but then your family moved to Iran. Is that right? Correct. So, when were you in Iran?
4: Uh, I moved to Iran when I was 10 and I lived there till approximately when I was 25.
0: Okay, so you spent 15 years in Iran, yeah. and, uh, and were you closeted gay at the time? Or, tell me about being gay uh,
4: in Iran. Being gay in Iran is, being alive and being gay in Iran is probably a miracle. Okay. I could put it that way. Um, being gay in Iran is equivalent to being a woman actually, in all honesty. It's very interesting. They see you as an eye as of not a man. Suddenly you're just a woman and you're treated like one. And I learned there also how awfully women are treated at the same time. Mm. How are they treated by those in power, whether it's politics or religion? Condescended, no rights. um, Regardless of the stance, usually, no matter how strong you think the power you have in hand is, still the right goes with the man. Mm. So it's it goes with dominance. That's, that's just about it.
0: And that's primarily then men who are in political leadership or religious leadership.
4: It could be from anywhere, from your own household to presidency. Mm. That's just how things run there.
0: Okay. So while you were in school, I mean, when did your home, did your being gay ever come out and become an issue?
4: Yes. Um, when I was sixteen, I had a diary. My father found it was laying out in the open. It wasn't just simple strolls on the beach with this guy I have a crush on. It was, let's just say, some very dirty fantasies I had written down in there, and my father had read it, and he lost his temper. He ran to the kitchen, and I still remember how clearly how he he swifted the knife from place. I just heard a sharp cling, and I dashed to my room. I. I sealed the door shut and I was quivering for for hours eventually he relinquished and just he walked out and I didn't see him for months Hmm. so that was my first encounter of coming out gay and after that um it was I felt that somehow it just wasn't so hard I was confident about it but yes um it was not a very friendly encounter not very accepting and Not very fun, you could put it that way.
0: You know, Karen was a journalist during the Iranian Revolution, right? Yeah, Yeah.
2: 1979. Wow. So, um, I remember the whole takeover uh, by the students and, uh, you know, the support for Khomeini um, and... The imposition of Sharia law. I mean, it was the overthrow of the Shah of Iran, which is why there's so many, frankly, Iranians in the United States, because they they fled the revolution. Uh, they were doing very well, middle class, rich people under the Shah of Iran. Yes. And after the revolution, they all fled. I mean, I was in New York at the time, and I remember actually uh, helping somebody who was who was fleeing. Meanwhile, in in, uh, Beverly Hills, well, now we have the Shaw's of Sunset. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the time, it was really, really critical because we started seeing the imposition of Sharia law, uh, where it was a religious state. And you were talking about women not, uh, you know, I mean, having to wear the the whole burqas and...
4: That's what it's called in English? Yeah, what, you, <laughs> okay. how do you, what do you call it in Iran? Chador. Chador. Chador, Chador. Yeah, the exactly. black veils, it's called Chador. How many languages do you speak? Seven.
0: Wow. So considering English, with English, with English.
4: <laughs> English? With uh, Farsi, Farsi? French, French, Spanish, Italian, some Arabic and Turkish as well.
2: But could I ask uh, when you went back for that period of time it was probably around the 1980s right what did you see how did you see the your con- that country change
4: Well I had never actually been to Iran mm-hmm. when I went there I was only 10 I grew up there so for me it's practically it's still considered home mm-hmm. at the same time but um if anything it was just an exacerbated situation, more corrupted than if what you saw before the revolution. And it's just getting worse day by day, actually. So, if anything, no improvement. That's a certainty.
0: Mm-hmm. And our relations between U.S. and Iran are pretty bad
4: right now. They're, they're, definitely, they're really, really pretty definitely. bad. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Now, when you were uh, – why did you leave Iran? Your family then moved back to the States? Well, um,
4: I had been trying to actually recruit from Iran, back come back to America, but I was stuck there because the Persian law is, if your father is Persian, you're considered Persian, not based on where you're born. That's not how it goes. In Iran, you're also there's a mandatory to do the military service, though so my family was not really okay with that situation because they knew if I had gone there. Um, I would have been, apologize, my language is saying this on the radio, but I would have been raped. And this is something I had already experienced when I was 18. And uh, neither I or my family were willing to let me feel that again, to go through such a trauma again. so we had to postpone. I didn't go and I was stuck in Iran until a new law came saying that gay men are exempted. I went to a doctor.
0: Hold on. We got to go to commercial break, but this is a fascinating. Don't forget where you are. We're going to pick up right where you left off when we come back here listening to Sidebar with John Duran on Channel Q.
1: As we turn the corner into the new year, a lot of people are looking to get healthier. That includes Hero Bread, who have just launched their new recipe using heart-healthy olive oil. Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs. Five to 11 grams of protein and high fiber in every delicious serving made with natural ingredients hero bread supports gut health promotes weight management and helps maintain blood sugar all with no compromise on the taste texture and bready goodness you expect from your favorites
0: No. <laughs> I am so Sia. bad I am so bad okay gang I, okay. I know all you millennials listening around the country are like rolling your eyes collectively at me right now I'm sorry I've I actually met Sia She she's actually Persian She is Persian. Wait, what? Sia, yes, Sia is Persian. Where did you meet her? I met her at a rock and roll club on the Sunset Strip. And they brought me over and said, Mayor, we'd like you to meet Sia. And she was not wearing curtains or any covering on her face. Really? Just a very attractive Persian young woman. I have a
4: question. Are me and Sia, Sia, excuse me, the whitest Persians you've ever met? Yes. (laughs)
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you are the most fair-skinned Persian. I would not cast you (laughs) as Aladdin. Aladdin. That's for sure. You know,
4: if I had a... I'm going to be honest, uh, but if I had a dime for every time, people say, you don't look Persian. I I swear, Bill Gates would be... <laughs> We'd be wiping my feet every day. Yeah. I well, yeah, I mean, and not to
0: get into racist stereotypes, but I no, think personally. a lot of people, when we think Persian, we think a swarthy, dark-skinned, dark-bearded, yes. dark-haired, and you are none of those things. No, You're blonde, blonde and, uh, and eyes, pale skin and pale. blue eyes and all that. But uh, uh, we're, uh, we're talking to uh, Pesman Gyasi, uh, Karen Oakham, noted LGBT journalist, and I are talking him, interviewing him. And when we left off before the commercial break, you were talking about being raped at age
4: 15 and he. 16. 16, okay. Yes. Um, where did we deal with? I'm sorry. Okay, so what I exactly, uh, to go back in my flashback is I remember I had just celebrated, we were celebrating graduation from high school. I, I graduated two years early and my so-called friends took me up north to celebrate. Mm, I tagged along. I was like, okay. So that very night I was inebriated and I woke, and my hands and feet were tied down, and I was being swindled, my innocence. And I just started screaming, screams, chasing, screams. I begged them to stop. But in exchange, they held a knife to my throat, and they told me to be quiet. Who's
0: them? Who's them?
4: My fellow schoolmates. Ah. And they told me to also keep my eyes wide open to make sure I watch it all because I, apparently I deserved it, and and for this reason I will be burning in hell.
0: So they, these were these were uh, men who identified as heterosexual in yes. Iran that were raping you to yes. prove their masculinity, or yes. Their manliness.
4: Yes, yeah.
2: which which goes to show that rape is more of a power it's issue. It's about power, not sex. rather than sex. Yeah.
4: Yes, yeah, yeah. it's more than that. It's not just a pleasure. It's it's more of a degradation. A
0: it's degradation and violence. Yes. Is what it
4: is. I'm sorry that happened to you. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And so you you
0: you left Iran and you came back and then you, you well came. not
4: that simply I didn't. Okay, let's agree. hear let's hear about it. Um, a while after actually um, poverty took to stealing me with my life, I was so poor I I couldn't feed myself. I can't name how many nights nights excuse me. My intestines gnawed each other from hunger, so I started to do prostitution. Um, I was shamed a lot, I I won't lie. It's not what you see here where you come and you pay for a guy to come and do his thing and leave. There it was a lot different because, hence I remind you, remember once, there's a feminine little touch to it that you need to have and that they expect from you. I'll never forget... um, one of the worst encounters was this, was this elder man. He would force me to put on stockings. And I asked him, I said, I'm here to please you. Why must you shame me? And he smirked and he said, well, your shame is what pleases me. Yeah. So, yes, like you said, dominance, shaming, degradation is the criteria of how it goes there.
0: Uh, under Sharia law, you could have been what? For being homosexual or for being a prostitute, a male prostitute in Iran?
4: The only way to, for the law to be able to do anything is only if they see you in action, if you're caught in action. They cannot take you in as a homosexual and just end your lifespan because you have a certain appearance. It doesn't work that way. But you will be traumatized walking the streets. That's a, that's a fair share. I, I thought
2: that you could be turned in, or people could tell on you if they snitch report, on you. Yeah, report yes, on you.
4: But they need to. It needs to report of sexual activity, mm-hmm. not just just for the existence of you being a homosexual. No, no. Mm-hmm.
0: Where is your family while all
4: this is going on? My father still lives in Tehran. He visits here and there. Um, my sister lives in Orange County, along with my paternal side of the family.
0: I guess I meant when you were in Iran, and all these things were happening, and you were hungry, and you were starving, and you were a male prostitute, and you were getting raped. Where was your family?
4: My family, most of them, they actually live here. Most of them, they're in Orange County, so there wasn't much to do, and my mother lived here at the time, in America at the time, and unfortunately, I had this very hot head with a lot of pride I carried, so... At the time I would say I'd rather die than ask for help from anyone. Just make it on my own.
2: But I think that you raise a really important point, which is that even though this is a religious, ultra-right religious country, prostitution still exists. Yes. And it's like a dirty little secret, if you will, including uh, being a male prostitute, uh, and the whole not only shame about that, but exchange of money and gifts and having, uh, you know, young boys, you know, as living partners until you're, you know, until the guy is tired of them.
4: It's mostly, for the main part, it's those who are actually. More delicate looking, with more baby face. Those who don't have facial hair, lighter features, or either they're thin and lean, or even if they're excuse me, more a little more meaty, maybe because that's a again another feminine thing. It's it's crazy. I can tell you that
0: we've got less than a minute. Why don't you tell our listeners about? I know you're writing a book. You've got a website. Tell us a little bit more about.
4: Yes, that. Um, the book is inspired by the events, the horrific events of my life, written in the form of a fairy tale. I've actually just commenced a fundraiser for it on the site Indiegogo. If you search for The Handsome Twist, there'll be a little bit more detail. I am also on Instagram as The Handsome Twist. All contributions would be highly appreciated. Even a dollar is a dollar. Uh, As right now, in all honesty, I I really am struggling to make a life and I don't know, without it, without help if I can publish it or not, so. Basman,
0: you've had quite a life journey and I appreciate you coming out and sharing some really intimate parts of your life with our listeners. Thank you, John. That's very, very nice, thank you. Thank you, Gang, we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be joined by David Ayon about the history of Latino politics in the southwestern United States. You're listening to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q.
3: Love the flexibility of working in all sorts of places? You're listening to Sidebar
0: with John Duran, and I know some of you think I'm Irish, but I am Latino, 100% Latino, Mexican-American. When I first got elected to the West Hollywood City Council, people thought I was just tan, but I was the (laughs) first Latino elected uh, west of La Brea in Los Angeles County. At least that's what I've been told. You may correct me. You may know people who were on the west side before me, but I got elected in 2001, and at the time, I was the only Latino sitting west of La Brea until Tony and his wife came along in Santa Monica. In Santa Monica. Santa Monica, yeah. Monica, yes. yeah. Uh, so we're talking to David Ayon. I still have Karen Oakham, our uh, walking lesbian Wikipedia of LGBT history, <laughs> and we've been joined by David Ayon. Welcome, David, to the show.
3: Thank you so much.
0: Now, I, I've known you for a while because you and I toured Israel together, but you are a noted scholar, professor, author about uh, Latino politics and the Latino power and how Latinos... Uh, rose to power, primarily in the Southwest.
3: You're you're very kind. And you're you're not mentioning any clandestine
0: activities. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) Yet. (laughs) The interview's just started. (laughs) You wrote a great book and thank you for giving me a copy, Power Shift. Uh, kind of details a lot of this history, but I I got to hear you lecture last night at the Iranian Jewish Temple. It was Uh, a conversation. It was a conversation. I I took it as a lecture, but (laughs) I learned so much even in that uh, hour and a half that I was listening to you about the history of our people. You know, our people, the whole. Southwest, of course, was once Mexico, right. all, all of California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, parts of Texas, and I know you're from the El Paso area, right? Yeah, right, Te- right on the border, yeah. Yeah, and, and so uh, to, to a little bit about the history of, of this whole movement of Chicano-Latino power. So,
3: well, the, the the thing that, I'm, and I'm not a historian, I'm a political scientist, so I'm sort of treading with political history on the on the historian's turf. Um, but the thing to know about the long cycles here, right was obviously since uh, the what is now the entire Southwest from texas to uh, to California, um, uh, when it started really its transformation was under Spanish colonialism when the when based in Mexico City as the Span- what was called New Spain, grew and expanded and came all the way up here. um and then of course, it passed from being part of the Spanish empire to independent Mexico in the 19th century in the 1800s and then and some of the same people including in the book their families were there and got there in the Spanish period they saw it become part of Mexico then they saw it become part of the United States but in that hundreds of years when it was part first of the of the Spanish empire and of and of independent Mexico obviously all of the towns Were Mexican towns, they were run by Mexicans, they were populated as such, including Los Angeles, founded first in the colonial days, but then becomes a city legally in the Mexican period, an act of of Mexico's Congress. California's representative at that time, even though California was not a state of Mexico, Alta California was a territory, but it had a voting representative in Mexico's Congress, and he lobbied and got L.A. promoted to city status and even got it designated formally as the capital of Alta California. Hmm. It it was in in constant battle with Northern California. Of course, once this becomes part of the United States, all of that is swept away. uh, As I often say, as I understand from the historians, even up through the 1870s, California becomes a state in 1850, right? All of the territory becomes part of the United States by 1848 with the Treaty with Mexico. Um, And into the 1870s at least, um, in Southern California and much of the Southwest, not so much Northern California because of the gold rush which changed things really fast. Um, With the arrival of the railroads and a lot of people, mainly from the Midwest, the people that came in the first or second phases of the US control of the Southwest, and especially in LA, were not immigrants from Europe. Or, or even second generation, they were they were essentially uh, white U.S. American immigrants Mid- from
0: Ohio, Midwesterners, <laughs> right, right.
3: and and Los Angeles became the biggest Midwestern city, um, except that it was on the coast, uh, mm. and the what had been a, a predominantly Mexican or Mexican origin population all the way through the 1870s was less than 5% of the population by 1900. Wow.
0: Wow. And that's not because the Mexican number dwindled, but because of the population explosion by whites who moved into yeah. Southern California.
3: Yes, The right. World Rushed In, uh, which is the title of a, of a book. And the, the first phase of that, of course, was the gold rush with so yeah. many people up there. Mm-hmm. But later with the railroads, people started coming, and L.A. most of all, uh, Southern California, California generally, as well as the rest of the Southwest, those that came in early and were seeking to make their fortune that were not up there looking for gold, panning for gold, they got into just simply attracting more people. It was a a classic, or a couple of classic books about L.A. talk about how L.A. didn't have gold, and it really didn't have other natural attributes at that time that would that would draw people other than perhaps the weather. Um, uh, but growth itself became l a s business model. Just bring more people in, build homes, just keep expanding the population. That's what it was about. Now, of course, at that time, what that meant is that for a long time, the proportion of the population that was of Mexican origin just shrank to, you know, minuscule right. proportions. And you had, Um, Certainly by 1900, you had no Latino, Hispanic, Mexican-American Elected officials anywhere in California?
0: None. None. Zero. That is so amazing to me. My grandparents migrated from New Mexico mm-hmm. to California in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. And my grandmother used to show me a photograph of two water fountains in downtown Los Angeles. One water fountain said whites and one said Mexicans. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, that I've never forgot that photo that there was that open racism of, by a newly arrived white population that had moved in where there had been Mexicans for
3: hundreds of years. Well, historians have done a lot of good work on, on this, and there are different ways in which the perception of Mexican people was shaped over time. And that, the first phase of that, that is the perception by Anglo-Americans, as the uh, terminology is often used in the Southwest, of uh, Mexican people, first started in the encounter in texas there's a great slim volume on that by a great historian it's called they called them greasers in which remarkably having exhaustively looked i mean very thoroughly looked at letters and diaries he could not find a single positive reference to a to a mexican in diaries journals publications in texas um prior to, I don't know, maybe, maybe throughout the 19th century. I mean, not one. And he cites many, many observations that were, that were quite uh, prejudicial. Yeah. Now, what I would say, just to balance this out, though, is that what we're talking about is uh, what was then part of Mexico, and Mexico has always been, continues to be a very unequal society. Uh, very stratified, very hierarchical, a lot of exploitation and discrimination. It's not like there isn't, there absolutely is racism in Mexico and throughout Latin America.
0: But against more dark skinned people. The yes. darker your skin, the more discrimination you experience in Mexico.
3: That's right. It, it, there, it, there's that very strong component of colorism, and it goes even into the ideology that was. Institutionalized in the colonial period, in which they divided people up in terms of their ancestry into racial castes, the caste system, the castas. There's even a whole genre of casta paintings that show you these different combinations. What do you get between a cross between a a Spaniard and an Indian, or a Spaniard and an African? And then on and on and on, all the way down. It would just remark, it's like a periodic table. So you're saying that we got to not... go to
0: commercial. I'm sorry, uh, hold
3: that question, Karen.
0: Hold that question. <laughs> we got to go to commercial. Uh, we thank you for listening to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q.
5: Tacovis is a terrific boot brand, and they're bringing a fresh perspective to heritage boot making. So they've carried forward all the time honored traditions and quality you find in a great pair of cowboy boots, but they've innovated on comfort, style, and service.
0: David Ayon is our guest, and Karen Oakham is co-hosting with me this morning. David, I was born in Lincoln Heights, although it's more like the Flatlands is where I was born. The Terrace is where I was born. And uh, I remember when I was growing up, uh, kids used to say, when did your family come across the border? And I'm like, oh, no, man. My Your border came across my family <laughs> in 1849 because the Durans and the Madrids and, and the Jimenez and all my family we've just always been in California Arizona New Mexico mm-hmm. for hundreds of years mm-hmm. we've always been here
3: yeah yeah always
0: been here and that, I think that a lot of Latinos have that uh, experience as well
3: well th- and there's not only there's the actual history which is which is true and it's reflected in all kinds of place names all over the Southwest um, there's also uh, the fact that uh, even having become part of the United States is still re- re- neighboring Mexico it's proximate it's proximate to Mexico. And that proximity and the nature of geography, and when I teach a class on politics, I start with geography. Uh, much of the Southwest, much of the West, has no real difference from Northern Mexico. Mm. You, you, you have very similar mountains, deserts. Uh, what Mexico doesn't have are the the sort of Great Plains that, that the United States has that becomes this fantastic breadbasket, mm. but um, especially producing wheat. But uh, that continuity was noted a long time ago. Like like the first really great author that, that charted this history was Kerry McWilliams, the, the Californian Kerry McWilliams, who was one of the founders of the ACLU and uh, ran The Nation magazine for a long time, but he was here and he wrote a slew of books. And he talked about how, he talked about that continuity between, you could move, especially in earlier times when the differences were less pronounced of the built environment, you could move sort of without even noticing that you'd uh, crossed any significant territory between Mexico and and what became the Southwest United States. That has allowed people to really bond over time. You had those who came up from Mexico and settled Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California. They developed their own local identity. It was a local part of the, the broader Mexican identity. Here, they came to call themselves Californios. Uh, and of course, there are the original Tejanos in in Texas and in New Mexico. They actually wind up um, rebranding themselves to try to distinguish themselves those who had been there for hundreds of years from Mexican immigrants that come later. And so they that's where the start of Hispanic identity starts. Mm-hmm. The in New Mexico, they they took to calling themselves Hispanos, and the, and. The basic reason for that was because the territory had been transferred as a, as a result of war. And nobody wants to be identified with a losing side and, and a foreigner to boot, right? <laughs> so they made their claim, no, we were here. We were here before Mexico was independent, which they were, right? So that's why they probably to a certain extent actually identified more with Spain than with Mexico. But there was a big uh, aspect there of pressure um of the 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 way in which the defeated people and people from that defeated country were seen and were were treated was was certainly uh, not nice it was not it was not status it was not complimentary and so, what they chose to do, what the Hispano identity that emerged in New Mexico chose to do, was to emphasize we were we were here first. We at least we were here before this became part of the United States.
4: Mm.
2: Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. Well, we were. I was going to ask a question about race, but that's so complicated. Hmm. Let me ask you about your book. Okay, it's titled Power Shift, and the list of names that uh, you've included uh, is. Uh, Gloria Molina and Polanco. And as I remember when I first started covering LGBT politics here, I had to get a you know, a crash course in Latino politics here, uh-huh. and those two, as I understood it, were sort of representing two different power uh, bases in Los Angeles. So power shift, what are you shifting from to? What is your power shift from to?
3: The basic thing is, uh, ha- having just uh, uh, described some of this, is how what was once a region, a territory, that was uh, settled and named and explored. This is, of course, without uh, uh, disparaging or neglecting the Native American history, but this is the part of the history that relates to Latinos to, to today. Having settled it, this was this was their land. How they became totally marginalized. It's not that all of that is in the book, but the fact is is that they became marginalized, excluded, unrepresented and and, as the book does say, subject to racialized treatment in all sorts of public services, but also society and and culture um, and that that was a pushing aside, which is, accounts in part for why we still think of the east side of LA as being the Latino side or the Mexican side of LA. They were, they were pushed aside, away from the center. And practically halfway through the 20th century, you still had no political representation. So this book focuses on the rise of Latino politics, where it came from, how it was uh, developed. It was invented because it didn't exist before, uh, starting with Ed Roybal. Who first runs for city council, LA City Council, in, in 1947, loses, then runs again in 1949. Now, there are various stages there. Uh, there's there's Roy Ball, it starts with Roy Ball and Esteban Torres. They wound up both in Congress, and, and then goes to Richard Alatori and, and Art Torres, who really shook up Sacramento when they got elected. That wasn't until the 1970s. Polanco, uh, Richard Polanco, and Gloria Molina succeed, literally succeed in the, in the office that they held. Torres, Art Torres and uh, and Richard Alatorre. But they weren't allies like the way Alatorre and, and Art Torres were. They, they competed f- first for the same seat. They first competed for a seat being vacated by Art Torres. And ever since that, which was a very bitter election...
2: And what year was that?
3: That was 1982. And that's when Gloria Molina became the first Latina ever elected to the California Assembly. Polanco then... Um, waited, bided his time. He went to work for Richard Alatorre, who was still in the assembly at that time. When Alatorre decides to run for LA City Council, opens up his seat. Polanco then succeeds Alatorre, and then they're both up there. So they're they're a, a central part of the story, but it's of this story of empowerment. But they're like three phases in, right? There's the first phase, there's the aleatory art Tourist phase, there's the Polanco uh, Molina phase, and then there are the two final ones, which is this transformation of the labor movement under the leadership of people like Marielena Durazo, who is now in the state senate, and her uh, late husband Miguel Contreras. They wind up becoming the leaders of labor and transforming labor by leading labor to embrace organizing immigrants, which it resisted for a century before that. That changes, and that contributes, all of the above contributes to the last phase, which are um, uh, Antonio Villargoza and Gilbert Cedillo, who this power buildup brings them to office, and then we start seeing a lot of changes in policy. The power shift is both representation and changes in policy.
0: David, we have less than a minute. Can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about your website, your book? How can they get more information if they were intrigued by all this?
3: Yeah, sure. Well, I I, I put some. I'm not totally uh, absent on social media. I do have a, a, a work site site. Uh, that uh, is named for Power Shift on on Facebook. There is also a website that contains videos, very nicely produced videos, of a number of book events that we had. We started with a spectacular launch in L.A. City Council Chambers. It was led by the mayor, and we had six of the eight living principal figures in the book were there. It was packed. We've had other big events, and we have another one coming up at UCLA. People can look for that announcement on Facebook and elsewhere. We're going to have a big event on the 14th um, at UCLA. We've been at USC and at a whole number of other places. On YouTube, you can find under Power Shift Book. Uh, If you look for that, you can find the videos of of those events and a lot more about the book.
0: That's David Ayon, A Y O N, with the accent mark, (laughs) Ayon, talking about Power Shift. David, thank you for joining us here on Sidebar with John Duran. I appreciate you staying one extra day to be able to come live in studio. Thank you. It's been
3: a great pleasure, Mr. Mayor.
0: All right, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran. We'll be right back here on Channel Q. Welcome back, gang. What an incredible Friday this has been. I want to thank all my guests who appeared today, Uh, Karen Oakham, our, you know, LGBT, I call her walking Wikipedia. She's just really been a bright, shining star. She has documented our LGBT history uh, for the past 30-plus years, and uh, if you ever get invited to her apartment there, her entire apartment should be a museum. I'll just say that, because she's got a little bit of everything in every which way. And I want to thank Paisman Gyasi for coming by and talking about being gay in Iran and the things that uh, happened to him while he was there. And finally, David Ayon. for, uh, I mean, I could sit and listen to David talk for hours about uh, the history of Latino culture and Latino politics. So what are we going to conclude with to, to sort of wrap this day out? Well, if, you, if you've been paying attention, you, you've watched what happened with the Attorney General William Barr in refusing to present himself before the the House Judiciary Committee despite the fact that he has been subpoenaed to be there. And what we are watching is a constitutional crisis in action. Benjamin Franklin uh, said, we give you a republic if you can keep it, America. If you can keep it, we give you a republic, we give you a democracy. And the founders of this country established a balanced system of power, power that would be shared by three co-equal branches of government, the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary. And we all know this, right? We had it in civics about having the balance of power between the three institutions. But what we are watching now is unprecedented. It is a power grab. It is a concentration of power in the executive branch by a reckless, brash New York businessman who has no respect for our history, has no respect for our culture, has no respect for our constitutional foundation, and instead is here, in his words, to shake things up a bit. Well, sir, our Constitution has worked quite well for 200 years. 150 years. It has been the established foundation that has brought the greatest democracy in history into its permanent place in world history and allowed women and LGBT people and racial minorities to struggle for equality. And it has been that balance of power of keeping the executive in check that's prevented greater disasters. We now watch to see what you will do in Venezuela, Mr. Trump, whether or not you will attempt to use the U.S. military force in order to force a socialist government out of place. And we will watch you very carefully so that we do not repeat the mistakes of Vietnam all over again with the executive use of power. And we will continue to fight you because in the end, the judges who sit on the Supreme Court, including the two that you put there, have got to decide whether they, too, will be lackeys for Donald Trump or whether they will stand for something greater than Donald Trump or your time in the White House for the constitutional foundation that our creators and our founders presented for us, that the executive left unchecked would become a tyrant, and tyrants were something that our founders opposed because whenever there was that sort of concentration of power, a great deal of oppression, discrimination, and violence against humanity occurred throughout all of bitter Europe. And our founders watched religious wars and they watched monarchs come and go and they decided to create something quite different and quite unique. You are now challenging all that with your presidency. You are thinking that you are above the law that you are king, uh, that you can uh, defy subpoena, defy process, and try to leave yourself unchecked uh, as if you were running a corporate boardroom in New York City again. You are not Donald Trump. And you are about to see and learn a lesson, I think a very painful lesson about what happens when the American people finally rise up and realize what you are up to. First, through our congressional representatives to keep you in check with the Speaker of the House and her lieutenants uh, on the Judiciary Committee, the Government Oversight Committee, and the Banking and Finance Committee, which includes Angelinos, Adam Schiff, and Maxine Waters above others. And you will see what happens when you are placed back into check. And as all all these issues end up in the federal courts and the federal judiciary. We will see if our federal jurists have the backbone to do what is right under the principle of the law. And eventually more and more will turn. When the thought of impeaching Richard Nixon first appeared on the political scene, most Americans were opposed to the impeachment of Richard Nixon until more facts were revealed and more information was given to them. That will repeat itself, sir. More and more facts will come out and eventually you Uh, will receive your proper placement in the dustbin of American history among those that have been despised and who tried to seize power and tried to interrupt the American experiment for their own self-aggrandizement and their own self-worth and wealth. And we will remember this period as a very dark time in American history that eventually the American people rose up and overcame when they realized who they are and who they wanted to be So stay tuned, kids. It's going to be a very interesting 2019 as this all unfolds. And we hope that wherever you are sitting listening to this, that you will look it up. If you don't know already who is my member of Congress, uh, you will call her or call him and tell them to do what's right for our nation and our future. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran. We will talk to you all next Friday. Have a fantastic weekend.